Uh, why don't we thank Dan as he comes now to bring God's word. Awesome, great, good to be here. Good night already. You've all responded, so I'll keep it short. Um, no, it's good. It's good to be in God's presence, to know His love, and really all that we're wanting to do ever is to showcase the fact that He does love us. And not only uh, do you need to hear that from me, uh, He wants you to know it directly from Him. And so we're we're, we're seeking um, an encounter with Him. Uh, that we might come away uh, more like him, closer to him. And so what, we get, what, we're, like what we've been exploring actually is, or going through, is a series in Mark. And this is the second week, uh, and it's on Mark 2. And the Gospel of Mark is really Mark's account of Jesus' life. And so Jesus is on display here. And that's what we're going to look at. So Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, the story of the paralyzed man that falls through the roof. Uh, that's what we're looking at. So this, this is it. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Father, we just come to you now and we open up our hearts And we pray that by your spirit, as we look to Jesus, that you would do something in our hearts that we would say, we have never seen anything like this. So come now by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. This is a pretty incredible passage. It's a well-known passage um, the, the paralyzed man who gets healed. Uh, but there's a couple of things here that are a first for Mark. This is really the start of his gospel. It's only chapter two. And it's the first mention of Jesus forgiving someone. And it's also the first mention of faith. There are also a few assumptions here, a working knowledge of a, um, just a normal Jewish person of the time, Uh, 
they realize or they know or they believe that God can forgive sins and he does forgive sins under certain circumstances. But there's, there's an interesting weight to the forgiveness that we see in this passage. It's not a normal sort of forgiveness that I think you or I would think about. Uh, in fact, the, the, the teachers of the law are thinking only God can forgive sins. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking I've, I've forgiven a few sins in my time. Uh, maybe you have as well. And so what, what exactly is this forgiveness? It, it, it must mean something beyond what we use in our day-to-day life. So what, we, what, we, what we're thinking is what makes the forgiveness that Jesus offers um, so special? And so out of, those, out of this passage, we have two observations really. That the forgiveness that Jesus offers means something way more than we take it to mean in our everyday lives. And if forgiveness means way more, then so too does this word sin. And there's actually a big debate um, in, our, in our world, in, in Christian circles at the moment, whether, um, whether people understand what sin is in, in our culture and our society and, and what our role is in helping people to understand that. And, but, but I think we don't actually need to be religious to know within ourselves what sin is. We don't need a technical definition. It's something tangible. It's something that is universally experienced. The reality that we're not living up to the ideal people we should be our own expectations, the expectations of others, of our society, the law, uh, we, we realize that if things were as they should be, if they were right, we would be more loving, we would be more selfless, we would be less involved in some of the things we're involved in, we'd be less confused about what right, what is right, but we live in this tension as, as human beings. This is not, it's, it, you don't need to be religious to, to understand this. There's a sense of, of loss or, or, or despair even in the reality of our failings. It's not just about having failed in the past, but having a sense of being damaged in a way that we can never fully uh, be made right, be set right the feeling of guilt of not measuring up is a tangible thing, a real marker to us that we're not just free to be ourselves. If we were all free to be ourselves, the world would be chaos. It would be dangerous to just be ourselves. The more honest we are with ourselves, the more we notice the weight of this this state we're in. Sin not being good or right or free, however you want to put it, the sense that you know of it is a plague within us that destroys our very being. The more we open ourselves up to the reality of it, the more we move quickly towards depression and this darkness. 
You, you notice, if, as, soon as, as soon as the word sin is mentioned, or you get a feel that maybe someone's going to be talking about sin for, for an hour, and it gets really dark, it's not just the lights, the mood is dark. Focusing on the fact that we're not good enough is debilitating. It sucks the joy out of all of life. We don't need people to tell us that we feel these things. It's a basic human reality. It's the basic reality that we spend most of our lives and resources trying to hide and run away from. Some of you know very well what it's like to live continually in this space. Maybe you came here tonight and you're in this space where you know this reality and you're living continually in that reality. But why would we ever want to confront a reality that plunges us into depression, into darkness, into despair. It crops up naturally enough in our own lives at times when we mess up or we fail, we battle with it internally. Why would we want to consciously bring it to mind? We know what sin is. So rather than be confronted by it and crippled by it, we mask the reality of it. The feelings of guilt, the fear of being exposed or condemned. Of course, we're going to do everything to distract ourselves from this reality. Now, I, I, I don't want you, get, you to get me wrong here. I, I'm not saying, and, and I don't want to be the person who's standing here and, and just going, you're wrong. That's not what I'm here to say. I, I, I don't need to convince us of that. What I'm saying is that personally we know the depressing feeling of sin and guilt and brokenness. We know that as individuals. No one needs to convince us of that. No one needs to convince us that it's a problem. We're hard pressed trying to forget the reality of it so we can just live our lives and function. Maybe you notice that guilt has been something big in the past or even when you were younger, you had a, a better sense of it, but you, f- you don't feel much of it anymore. But it'd still be true that there are things about your heart, your thoughts, your actions that you'd rather keep hidden than being exposed. Things that eat away at you internally, that affect your life, that steal the joy of living from you. The effects of sin are there whether we choose to acknowledge them or not. Symptoms crop up. Identity fracture, anxiety, self-righteousness, hardness of heart. But for most of us, even these symptoms are better than us confronting directly the reality of sin. We, we, we would rather deal with the symptoms than confront despair and low self-esteem. We prefer to model confidence rather than revealing insecurity. You'll be familiar with your own ways of distraction, your own strategies. We even use our resources 
to distract ourselves. It makes life bearable and even pleasant at times, but it never seems to fix the reality that's underlying the surface. As long as we can keep ourselves comfortable and having a good time and not being put out, then we feel we're okay. But for the most part, we do have resources to create a bubble of comfort around ourselves to minimise this reality. You might notice that you are uh, moving into a space where you feel less depressed and you have less outbursts of anger, you're less impatient, not because we're becoming better human beings, uh, but because we've made sure we had our first cup of coffee before we went to work in the morning. Or we make sure we come into less contact with the sort of people that grind up against us because we're well fed and less tired and we have more leisure time and time to unwind. But if we miss that coffee or we have a bad night's sleep or your mum tells you to pause the video game, it doesn't pause, mum, come on, this is live. Or for whatever reason, you have to deal with someone you don't really like. We start to feel the reality of things creeping back in. We're not as good as we know we should be. We're not even as good as we pretend to be. Sin is a problem and we know it. And we can look to others to feel better sometimes the comparison trap is a, is a great coping mechanism. It distracts us from coming to grips with our own personal sin. As long as we have worse sinners in view, people who we can see way further down the line of goodness, then we can rest a bit easier. So if you're maybe comparatively good at following the rules, at meeting societal or religious standards, uh, you want to hide from that despair of your own brokenness, your own insecurity. All you have to do is just look straight down the line at people who are way worse off and realize that you're well above average. And at least that's something that we can feel good about. So we see these two major things. We use our externals to create a space and an environment, a bubble, if you will, of ideal circumstances so that we can function well and we keep sinners in view. And I mean, this is the reality. If, if you had to, to choose between distraction and despair... What are you going to choose? We're, we're going to pick distraction every time. Of course, we don't want to keep thinking about what we're, what, what's going on under the surface. No, no one wants to feel despair. No one wants to actively walk into that. But the reality, on the other hand, is as well that distraction, by definition, doesn't save us from the despair. It's just an anesthetic, so we, so we don't feel the pain as much. And sin continues to gnaw away at our humanity in the background. This is the reality of the sin we know is hiding under the surface of our lives. 
We don't need convincing of it. And it's this reality that we know that sets the stage for talking about the main characters in Mark 2. We've got the the teachers of the law on the one hand and we've got the paralyzed man. And the teachers of the law are really the Olympians of distraction. Uh, They're they're good. They're, They're great at creating a comfortable bubble around them to make keeping the law easy. They're around good people. They're at the the top of the food chain. They're looking down on all the sinners in society who don't have the privilege of living their lives in a religious bubble. They're confident. They feel good about themselves. I was actually convicted by this, the reality of this. A few years ago, uh, if you don't know, I have an engineering background and I was working in construction And I was very confronted with how short I was as a person, very impatient, uh, quite sharp with people. And then I moved jobs and um, I'm working here and I found actually, I'm I'm a great person. Something happened, it changed me. It changed me. I'm an incredible person. It's not to do with my coworkers. They're just as bad as construction workers. (laughs) So I'm a much better person. You see, we, our, our, our environment and the things that we use around us do have an effect on what we think about ourselves or what we're confronted with about ourselves. This is the way that the teachers of, of the law are living, in a bubble, looking down on others. On the other hand, the paralytic has none of the distractions available to him. I actually, if you're a construction worker here, I did, we can talk afterwards. Um, not only is this, this paralyzed man confronted with the guilt of his sin, he's way down at the bottom of the religious food chain. In fact, there's a few things in this society that the teachers of the law and the general population marked out as confirming people in their sin. Markers that meant that you were cursed by God. Things like if if you were met with an untimely and public death, it meant you were cursed. God was against you. If you were hung on a cross, they believed that God was clearly against you because of your sinfulness. In this society, disease and disability had the same, the same effect. It was an indicator for them of sin, that you were not as you should be and therefore God was against you. In the society that the paralytic lives in, only criminals, the sort of people who would be hung on crosses, are worse off than they are. His disability is taken as a given that he's suffering as a result of his own sin. So imagine for a second that you're this guy, this paralyzed man, you're living in a society where you're right at the bottom of the hierarchy of what it means to be okay as a human. You've got nowhere to hide. You've got nowhere to look below you. Even if you could do all the things that were required to be, a, to be a functioning and good human being, you'd still be wrong by default because you were paralyzed. 
and nothing you can do will ever fix that. On top of that, you have no way to distract yourself from the reality of your sense of despair, of God-forsakenness. You're living a life that's riddled with guilt and shame. You probably don't even have the self-esteem to look people in the eye. That's where this guy is at. He's staring despair in the face. He cannot hide from the reality of sin. As a paralyzed man, he believes he is physically marked against God. How could he ever be made right? From the bottom of the ladder, he's looking up to the top at the teachers of the law, the ones who are teaching everything that needs to be done to be accepted by God. If he were ever to have a hope of being accepted, he would need to be saved from his paralysis. Before he'd ever be able to get rid of his sin and guilt and shame in the system that the teachers of the law are teaching, he'd have to walk first, but it'll never happen. He knows he needs to be right with God to be free, but it's an impossibility. He sees his paralysis as confirmation that he is cursed by God. And this is really where we come to in this story, where Jesus enters the, the, the scene And the paralyzed man just hears that there's a guy, there's just some guy who's who's going around healing people. And when he hears that, there's a hope that starts to rise in his heart. Maybe if he could get to Jesus, he could be healed. And if he was healed, he'd be able to move towards God to get rid of the sin and the despair that he's experiencing. If he could get rid of the curse that is on him, then he'd be able to move towards forgiveness. This is important to understand here that this man, he's paralyzed, but the main goal in his life is not to get his legs back. If we think that, then we don't really understand the despair that's going on here. That goes way deeper than his paralysis. He knows the reality and weight of sin and he longs to be free. To be healed physically for him is just a means to an end. The bare minimum that he believes he needs to start on a trajectory of being made right with God, of being freed from sin. I think we struggle to grasp this. We, we know what sin is, but, but we're so numb to the reality of it that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. We, we would see physical healing as the main thing, the main thing that would make life worth living. We would want physical healing for ourselves as a distraction from the problem that lies deeper within us. 
not as a means to getting rid of that ultimate problem. But for the paralytic, the idea of being physically healed is lighting up the hope of his heart for something much greater. And he knows that he can't get to Jesus himself. So he enlists a group of people, some friends, to get him to Jesus. They hear he's back in town and so they go to where he is like many people are doing and when they get there, it's packed. There's no way that they can get through the crowd. But where there's a will to meet Jesus, uh, there is always a way. So up the roof they go, vandalizing the house to get in. They're already at the bottom of the religious food chain. You can't go lower. We'll deal with that later. They hear he's back in town and they set their eyes towards him and they do everything to get in front of him. So they lower him down and he lands right in front of Jesus. The teachers of the law, they're there looking on. You've got the top of the pecking order and the bottom and you've got Jesus in the middle It's like a Mexican standoff. They're all looking at each other, wondering what's going to happen next. And Jesus, seeing the faith of the paralyzed man and his posse, says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And we're only into the second chapter in Mark here, and already we've just hit one of the biggest twists in human history. I don't want want the gravity of what's just happened here to be lost on us. The greatest goal of the paralyzed man is to be made right with God. He's come to Jesus as a step towards that. To him, Jesus is just some guy who can heal people. And being healed physically to him is just a stepping stone towards a greater reality. But as he is before Jesus, Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And what he thought was just a stepping stone is the real thing. He encounters God directly. He receives forgiveness, the forgiveness that he's been after. Real life transforming forgiveness. It's then, as a side note, that Jesus, just to prove to the teachers of the law that he has authority to forgive sins, just to prove that he's the son of God, actually heals the guy physically. And you know what? I I, I truly believe, it doesn't say it explicitly here in the text, but I truly believe as this man is walking out of the house, his heart is not captured by the fact that he's now walking. It's captured by the fact that he has felt the reality of God's forgiveness. His whole life has been lived thinking that God is against him and now he's stepped into the reality of God's love for him. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we, we should minimize the, the, um, how good physical healing is. It, physical healing is incredible. 
But what I'm saying is that the experience of God's forgiveness, forgiveness as defined by this passage, as defined by what God is talking about, what Jesus is wanting us to know tonight, it is way more incredible. And if, and if we, we don't have a sense of that, if, if, if we feel like, well, the, the walking, that'd be, surely that'd be better. If, if we don't have a sense of that, then, then we actually have grounds to ask ourselves whether we truly know God's forgiveness. Perhaps there's a much greater hope that's on offer, that's available to you, that's available to us that we have not tapped into. If you've ever experienced God's forgiveness, you'll have a sense of what's going on here. If there's one thing that God wants us to get here tonight, it's that his forgiveness is the main event. I don't mean just saying that or trying to feel it or know it intellectually. He wants us to know it for sure in a way that can trump even an incredible, miraculous physical healing. Literally to know it, not just to say it, but to come to encounter God in Jesus with no barrier between us. And the question for us is how can we come to encounter this forgiveness? How can we enter into something like this? And we find that it says right at the start, the reason that it's opened up to them is because Jesus saw their faith. As I mentioned before, this is the first time that Mark is, is using the word faith here. So the context has to define it for us. What is the faith that leads to forgiveness, to our experience of forgiveness. And the process we see here is that first, a hope is kindled by the person of Jesus. For the paralyzed man, something about who Jesus is and what he can do sparks a sense of hope towards truly being made right to escape from the sin, to escape from the despair. Somehow, Jesus reveals himself as a gateway to a greater reality. For the man, he didn't understand fully what that was. He saw Jesus just as a stepping stone to a greater reality, one part of a greater movement towards God. But but even only seeing it as a stepping stone, a, a sliver of hope was brought about in his heart, something that he could grab a hold of, that he could actually move towards, a hope that he could move towards. Faith, as defined by this passage, is having Jesus awaken a new hope for a new reality in us. And then it's us moving towards that reality with everything we have, moving towards that hope. If you can't walk, 
Get someone to carry you. If there's no way through the front, go through the roof. Faith is the drive towards the hope that Jesus has awakened in us. The drive to meet with him. Without Jesus, there is no hope. All we have is distraction. Without hope, there is no faith. There's nothing to move towards. Faith is movement towards God in Jesus. Faith in Jesus starts off as a hope for freedom from the despair, from the sin in our lives. Jesus opens up an avenue for us to be free from sin that isn't just distraction. It's not just numbing. He's offering true freedom. Do you know sin in your own life? Are you fractured as a person? Are you hurting? Is life a weight to you? Are you weary? Are you burdened by worry or guilt or shame or anxiety? Are you crippled by reality? You know what sin is. You don't need a definition. What we need is Jesus. It's the very reason he came. This is what it says in Isaiah 61 and what Jesus ends up quoting when he starts his ministry. This is what, this is what he says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is to us. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Do you long for that? Does that kindle a hope in you beyond what you are currently experiencing? Do the stories that Jesus, of what Jesus have done, has done to people in the past, maybe people around you now, does it spark a hope that maybe he could do it for you? Allow the hope to grab a hold of your heart. And as it begins to take a hold, in faith, move towards Jesus. Do whatever it takes to move towards him. Stop whatever you need to. Give away anything that's holding you back. Do not let anything stop you from coming to him. You cannot experience freedom. You cannot experience the forgiveness he has open to you without faith.
There is no faith without movement on our part towards him, towards the hope he has. Faith in Jesus starts as a hope for freedom from despair, freedom from sin, but it doesn't end there. Freedom from sin and despair is just the beginning. Jesus leads us on to a greater hope, a living hope. And that means that wherever you are now, whether you've been a Christian for 90 years, whether you're not a Christian yet, you can move towards Jesus more tonight. The hope that God has for us in Jesus is always more than you are currently experiencing. If you're not completely like Jesus yet, then there's way more. Let's be people of faith as we see the hope of Jesus, as we see his very person, as hope is kindled in our hearts, let's move towards him. And if forgiveness seems like second best to us, seems like the second prize, it's because we're distracted. We're numbing ourselves to the devastation that sin is actually causing in our lives. We're not wanting to move towards Jesus because we've stopped looking for hope of freedom. We've lost sight of freedom. We've settled for distraction. Despair is grabbing a hold of us. But Jesus promises a way out. That as we look to him to find hope, he will be found. And this is actually the exclusive claim of Jesus. No one else claims to be able to give freedom from this. That's not distraction. He says, only hope in him can unmask the distraction and not leave you in despair. It draws you out as you move in faith towards freedom. Open yourself up to the greater reality that Jesus has on offer for you. Jesus isn't calling us here tonight to focus on our sin. That was the whole half of the first sermon and I, and I, I hated that, that was terrible. Did you feel that? He doesn't want us to focus on that, he, to make yourself feel guilty enough that that'll motivate you out. He's calling us to look at him so that we can, that he can ignite a hope in our hearts that repels us away from the place that we're at in a movement of faith towards him. G.K. Chesterton has a, has a quote that, that really captures this. He says, the vision Jesus gives us is always a fact. It's the reality we're currently in that's often a fraud. Do you get that? The vision Jesus gives us is always a fact. The hope that he has set before us is reality as it should be. But it's the reality we're currently in that is often a fraud. Do not settle for the place you're in. 
as we look to Jesus, as we see the hope, as he begins to capture our hearts, let's move. Let's be people of faith. And that's what he's inviting us to do with our whole lives, in fact, to have nothing held back from him so that nothing can hold us back from the life that he has for us so that no sin can keep us captive. It's the very reason actually that Jesus came for forgiveness of sin. And it's the reason why we're gonna respond tonight in communion to remember what exactly he has put on offer. What is on offer for us here tonight? A movement, faith in him towards hope, greater hope than even now we are experiencing. And so that's why Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And breaking it, gave thanks, said this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we remember Jesus who became became what we considered a curse to be hung on a tree as a criminal, as we remember the fact that he gave himself for us so that we might know forgiveness, so that we might know the love of God, so that we might be freed from sin. Let's eat together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He went to the utmost extent for us so that we might have forgiveness. And that's, what, that's what's on offer here tonight for us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nothing. The hope is set before us. He calls us to remember that we are free in Him, no longer bound by sin, completely forgiven. So let's remember the blood He shed for us for the forgiveness of our sin. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you that you would go to the furthest extent for us to be called children of God, to be called your children. 
that you would call us sons and daughters. We thank you for Jesus. We want to be people of faith. We want to be people who are completely cleansed. You have done everything that was required for that to happen. And so now we come to you and we ask, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from the sin that entangles us. Cleanse us from the things that hold us captive, from, that prevent us from continuing to walk in faith in a movement towards you. Help us to know the depth of the reality of your forgiveness, the way that this paralyzed man did 2000 years ago. Compel us by your spirit to live lives of faith. And so we look to you, we set our eyes on you and we wait for you. Kindle the hope in our hearts compel us to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're gonna worship God. This is a reality that we can live in now. It's a, re- it's a reality that He's longing for us to walk in and experience more of. Do not hold back. Let's move towards Him. Let's move to the hope that he has set before you, that he has set before us. So let's stand together as we worship. There is no 
Thanks for those words as we sung them, so powerful. And thanks for the message that we've heard tonight. And I don't know why, I was just reminded of that scripture. Um, I think 1 Samuel where it talks about to obey is better than sacrifice. And uh, Father God, this is what you call us to. You say, I want you to obey my commands. If I'm truly Lord of your life, then you'll you'll listen and you'll obey what I call you to do. And uh, Father, it's in some respect, it's difficult at times, but we need to believe that what You call us to is is good and right for our lives, Father God, and that we can actually trust You wholeheartedly with our lives. And as Dan was sharing tonight, there may be aspects of our lives, you know, the distractions and the things in our lives that we need to surrender and hand over to You. And maybe it's an opportunity just to respond right now. And I'm just gonna give, an, give a moment 
If there's something in your own heart and in your own life, you know that you need to let go of and you need to surrender over to God. Maybe He's been prompting you and leading you in. I just wanna give you just, just a few seconds just to, to surrender that to God, just in your own heart and in your own mind. Just, just pray to Him now and just say, God, help me in this area. Whatever it might be that He's calling you in. I just wanna give you that moment now. Father, thank You that You hear every response, every prayer. Thank You, great God, that, that what You call us into, what You lead us into is good for us, it's right for us. It brings us into a place of freedom, not bondage. And that's what You want for us, to bring us to a place of freedom and faith. And so I pray, great God, that uh, You continue to empower us and help us to walk in faith towards a deeper intimacy and a deeper relationship with You the fullness of life that we can experience in You. So we thank You, great God, the way that You lead in God and the things that You put on our hearts. And there may be some that still need to wrestle with that and talk it out. And I just pray that we would continue to respond to You tonight as we work through those things and You place them on our hearts, we pray. So great God, we love You, we honour You and we worship You. And what a privilege and honour it's been to gather together tonight and just to praise You tonight and to hear from Your Word. So we thank You. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and precious Name. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's been so good to have you here. Great to have you tuning in online as well. But I do just wanna say, if there's anything that you just feel like, oh, I need to talk about that further or there's something that's on your heart there, um, please grab uh, one of the pastors or grab someone and just talk to them about it. We'd love to pray for you. Um, but God bless you so much. Uh, whatever you do this week, may God use you and uh, we'd love to see you next Sunday. Have an awesome night.